Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Rockney Cast, a podcast for men and the women who love them. What do you think about that new theme? I kind of like it. For this episode of the Rockney Cast, we're going to cover an awesome documentary on PBS about Ernest Hemingway, and it was done by Ken Burns. It's a three-episode documentary, and it is so good. I think you need to get one of those special passes to get it, but totally take some time to watch it because it is going to be a rich source of insight for you because it's easy to forget how freaking cool Ernest Hemingway was. So for this episode, I'm going to give a little bit of review of the documentary itself, but not really as much. The documentary inspired me to read The Sun Also Rises by Ernest Hemingway, basically his debut novel. So for this episode, we're going to cover a short timeline of his life. And don't worry, it'll be, it'll be really interesting, right? That The timeline piece of it. Number two, we're going to dive into a little bit the Sun Also Rises and connect it to Robin Williams and Carpe Diem. Number three, we're going to cover a little bit of the work of Joseph Campbell and connect it to what makes Ernest Hemingway so compelling as a writer. And number four, we're going to cover how his legacy, like what it means to love Ernest Hemingway, this incredibly flawed human being who bar none, is basically considered the best writer of the 20th century. Um, I mean, he is, you know, Mark Twain is to the 19th century, what Ernest Hemingway is to the 20th century, and you could literally retake a whole class on the work of Ernest Hemingway, and not a whole class, you could, you could almost take a whole curriculum and develop it around his life, and you could learn so much. So I'm going to give you, so so to start, I'm going to give you a little bit of a timeline because I think what's really remarkable about Hemingway is how really quickly he became Ernest Hemingway. And for some of you, this might make you feel depressed um, because he wrote A Sun Also Rises when he was 27 years old. What were you doing when you were, what are you doing right now? But I think there's going to be some good news here. But I, I, I think you just, for those of you who haven't dived into Hemingway, I think you're going to kind of be blown away about what a badass he was. And this is not hero worship. Uh, Hemingway was incredibly flawed. He was married four times. He had all these affairs. He used some horrible language from time to time. He was a total drunk. He hunted all sorts of animals, but God, he's just, he's a dude's dude. And I think he's kind of the, the perfect person to start this reboot of the Rockney cast because he's a man's man. And I, I think he's kind of really inspiring. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm probably not going to 
abandoned this theme for a while. I'm going to intersperse it with other ones, but we're, we're going to do some deep dive into Hemingway because there's a reason why he is one of the best writers of the 20th century. So let's start off a little bit with his timeline because here you're going to be kind of blown away and you're going to be like, oh my God, what am I doing with my life? Like Ernest Hemingway was a star by the time he was 21. Well, yeah, so he was born in 1899 in Oak Park, Illinois. And after having read this particular or seen this documentary, I'm definitely going to check out his birthplace. To a father who was a physician and a mother who was, I think, a musician and kind of like a classic liberal arts woman of the 19th century that brought music and art and reading into the home. And he did not have a very happy childhood, but what kind of connected me to Hemingway a little bit is they did have a summer cabin in the Northwoods in Michigan. And he did some writing for his high school paper. He was not a great athlete at the time. He wasn't a total stud with the ladies. But um, he had a fairly conventional upbringing, interspersed by occasional trips up to um, essentially northern Michigan, where his family had a cabin. Not a super happy childhood. I think his mom was kind of one of these overbearing bitches, and he kind of hated her guts. And his father seemed like a really decent person, but he was racked with anxiety and ultimately, I think, offed himself and committed suicide. Um, and, you know, of course, I got with you doctors... I have new respect for you day by day in terms of what you go through. Um, you know, he would get random calls and try to save people's lives and childbirth. And, and of course, a lot of times he wasn't successful. But so he kind of has a relatively unconventional or conventional childhood in Oak Park, Illinois. And so sometime I'm going to do a grand man crush tour. I'm going to check out Oak Park. I'm going to check out Galena, Illinois, um, where my ultimate man crush lived for a year, U.S. Grant. Um, but so he grows up there. And instead of like doing like what most people from Oak Park do, like go to the University of Iowa and just get drunk and get some get some degree and then come back and then, you know, basically live the life of Ferris Bueller's parents. Um, Hemingway, at, in, at in 1917, he's, he's like 18 years old gets a job as a reporter for the Kansas City Brickin' Star. Now, I'm going to read a biography of, of Hemingway at some point, but this is the first sort of sense that he always had this, I don't know whether it's because his father was so miserable and hadn't lived the life that he was really meant to be, but instead of being like, oh, I'm going to go to college and I'm going to like major in English and I'm going to recite a bunch of poetry and you know try to get a job that's really good and live a chilled out life in Oak Park, Hemingway just kind of has this overwhelming desire to suck every ounce of life out that he can. It's almost as if he saw, you know, um, Dead Poet Society and, and, and heard in the future uh, Robin Williams calling out to him, carpe diem, carpe diem, seize the day, live life to the fullest. So Hemingway... In 1917, goes and works as a journalist. Can you imagine getting a job in the, at the age of 18 for a major newspaper? Hemingway does this. And this is one of the ways that he develops his writing style. And, you know, if you want to learn how to write, I don't consider myself a great writer. But Hemingway, it's the clearest, most succinct 
detail-oriented prose that you'll ever read. And if you learn how to write like Hemingway, like I, I think one of the things I would do if you want to learn how to write, like I would literally get out a typewriter and copy some of his paragraphs just so you can get the feel of how Ernest Hemingway wrote and just the cadence, the succinctness, the detail, the rhythm. You know, they said early on in the documentary that his mother loved the work of Bach. So he learned this kind of almost musical staccato quality to his writing that's just made it so dazzling to read. So it's 1917 and he's a journalist there. And of course the journalists, what do they do? They know how to write, they know how to get to the point. They know how to be succinct, which I admit is not a strength of mine, but if you're listening now, you are enjoying this podcast. And that's kind of me. I'm not just going to be like, yeah, Ernest Hemingway, period. Great life, period. It's done, period. Oh, and then you wouldn't listen to that. So, I mean, there's exceptions to that. But as a writer, it's so beautiful. So he's, this is 1917. In 1918, he volunteers in the um, in Italy as an ambulance driver. And I believe he's working for, I think, the Italian government to, to fight against the Axis powers. And he gets injured. So he, he sees combat. He's 18 years old. And he falls in love with a woman there who I think is treating him um, for his injuries, who's seven to eight years older. And this becomes the, um, the, the framework for a, for a farewell to arms. But it gets better. So then he survives, obviously. He doesn't die until he offs himself in 1961 in Ketchum, Idaho. He goes back to Chicago. And what would you do if you were 18? You'd be like, oh, um, I'm going to go get my, um, my degree. And I'm going to... And by the way, I'm not bashing on getting your college degree. I think it is good for a lot of people. Okay. It's not an undone to itself. So we'll do another one podcast on the value of a college degree, whether you should go or not. You know, a few of us are Ernest, Ernest Hemingway. I guess if you don't go, here's what you should do. You should live like freaking Hemingway. So he goes back to the Chicagoland area. And I think he kind of fucks around a little bit. Um, he, I think, goes to some parties. By that time, I think having been in the war, he starts learning how to pound down the drinks. He parties a lot in Chicago and through this is he's 20, 21 years old, um, through the various parties with his first spouse, who he dedicates his book to, um, Hadley, Hadley, and I think there's some John Hadley Nicanor. Um, I believe it's Hadley Richardson. I think that's her name. So in any event, with his first wife. They get married at a young age and they start, you know, going to parties in Chicago. And through that process, they meet Sherwood Anderson, who was a guy um, who was a well-known literary short story writer in the Chicago area. And he takes a light liking to these two and realizes that they're these incredible people. And so what does he do? He says, go to Paris. And evidently, I think, Hemingway's parents had some dough, but certainly Hadley's parents had some dough too. And so, and at the time, you think of like Paris, oh my God, how much is that going to cost? Not as much as you would think. I mean, it's still 19, 2021. They're still recovering from the war. There are some so low rent districts there. But at the age of 21, 
1921, um, he's 20, 22, 23 years old, he goes to freaking Paris. And immediately, if you can imagine this, imagine what would happen if you would go to Paris. You'd be like, oh my gosh, I'm going to go to like a youth hostel and I'm going to go get drunk and see if I can get laid. And maybe best case scenario, like you go to a, you know, techno or something. That's what kids would do today. Not Ernest Hemingway. Anderson sets him up with Gertrude frickin' Stein, one of the best modernist writers of the early 20th century. And through that connection, he meets F. Scott Fitzgerald, you know, who, of course, wrote The Great Gatsby. He meets Pablo Picasso, Joan Moreau, James Joyce, all of these incredible writers in Paris. And there's this salon that she holds that is Gertrude's sign. And it's, um, my sister Susie's going to love this because I'm totally going to read Movable Feast now after having read this book. Um, I've seen this documentary. You totally have to check it out. It's so good. And he's in Paris and he's interacting with some of the best writers in the world, hanging out with his wife, getting drunk, having a ton of affairs, doing these trips. And I think through that process, somehow he, I think he did, you know, like if you're in Europe, one of the things that would be similar to like what kids would do today is you take the train and you do some traveling. So they've done some traveling to Switzerland and Austria and also to Spain. And through that, he kind of developed a love for bullfighting. And so that gets us into the kind of the second thing I want to cover in the podcast, which is a sun also rises. Now, for whatever reason, you know, I just did an episode on Catcher in the Rye uh, by J.D. Salinger. And for whatever reason, I had never taken any 20th century American literature courses. So I'd never come across Hemingway. I think at one point I tried to read um, for whom, not for whom the bell tolls, but a farewell to arms. And I was like... You know, it's really weird. Yeah, they always say they shouldn't waste education on the youth. I mean, there were books that just totally blew my mind, but I, I read Farewell to Arms and, you know, I, I wasn't really into it. And I was just kind of like, yeah, you know, he's just talking about recovering and there's some nurse there and, you know, he's drinking, you know, various cocktails and I, I just was not able to get into it. So I, I kind of never touched Hemingway again. And all of a sudden, I'm at a secondhand store, and this is just basically within the last year. And in fact, now that I remember it, I did not read A Sun Also Rises just because I had seen the documentary um, and ordered it. I actually was at the depot outlet in Decora, Iowa, and I literally got A Sun Also Rises for like 10 cents. And I was like, okay, I'm going to read this book. And holy shit, it is a good book. And this basically is the book that made Hemingway famous. And it's kind of like Moby Dick, where you ever think like with writers, like I have not read Ulysses yet by James Joyce, in part because I'm like, yeah, is this just kind of like some academic says that I should read it and it's really not that good. You know, academic musicians, for example, they like a lot of atonal bullshit. And they like a lot of super complicated prose. And I, I don't know. I was just kind of like, yeah, it's just something where, yeah, they might, um, you know, they might 
they might like it, or maybe I have to read it in high school, but am I really going to like A Sun Also Rises? Because this is, this is the one that makes Ernest Hemingway, Ernest Hemingway, okay. And it's published, I believe, in like 1926-ish. Hemingway is 27 years old. So if you aren't feeling the clock ticking, like I'm 48, and I'm like, holy shit. But here's where I, I identify with it, because clearly, I don't know whether it was because his father was so freaking miserable or his mother. I'm sure there's something to do with that, that his dad became a doctor. And, you know, which is kind of this kind of like a lawyer where you kind of have this artificial credential. And when you realize how fucking stressful it is you kind of wistfully wonder like what could have been what could have i done with my life had i followed my heart and i followed my bliss which we'll get into the work of joseph campbell after this but hemingway clearly had this kind of just from a young age this driving desire to get everything he could out of life and it was clearly something that um, was almost just like he could almost hear the clock ticking. And I'm definitely going to cover at some point and try to dive into a good biography of Hemingway. But if you can just imagine this book. So, and so, so I'll give you the, the takeaway. It's not going to be a super, not going to give you any plot twist or anything like that. Totally read the book. It is so good. But I'm going to focus on two aspects to that book. Um, first, of all, first of all, is the Bible verse in Ecclesiastes. I'm like, the Bible as a literary device and just this inspirational book, it really is that good, people. Even if you're not that religious, reading the Bible, like I have a whole bunch of favorite verses now, but this is not some desire to, to, to convert you. Like if, if you don't want to go, don't, I mean, don't go, but it starts off with this beautiful passage from Ecclesiastes. And it says, I'll just read it. And I'm, I'm kind of, I'm not going to use the old English because I don't know. I, I just don't like using the old English. So I'm, I'm going to use it in the, in the modern voice. But here's how the book begins. One generation passes away and another generation comes. But the earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hasteth to the place place where he arose the wind goes toward the south and turns about under the north it whirleth about continually and the wind returns again according to his circuits all the rivers run into the sea yet the sea is not full under the place from whence the rivers come thither they return again ecclesiastes i mean wow if that doesn't just give you chills, because really until he died, Hemingway lived this just incredibly rich life. And when he died at his own hand in 1961, one thing he could feel good about, he left absolutely nothing on the table. So one of the things that really struck me from the book and totally read the book, and there's a lot of reasons to read it. I mean, once he can just say like, yeah, I've read it. I mean, that's one way that you can do it. Um, I There's certain books like Catcher in the Rye, like I didn't think was that good. 
but I just wanted to say I read it. That's why I read Moby Dick. And I actually, I'm glad I read Mo Moby Dick actually is that good. Catch in the Rye, could have I survived without it? Yeah, I, I probably could have. Read Sun also. You, you got to put this on your bucket list. Yeah, so now, now I've read it, but I'm probably going to read it. It's a good enough book that you're probably going to want to read again. But th this question of what's driving Hemingway to live this life of adventure and purpose instead of going to college, instead of having... Uh, a standard career he listens to his own bliss he is a writer he knows that in his heart and he follows that so what was the most so read it and then read it for the details the descriptions of the bullfights all of that um but the best part of the book the, the, my takeaway from is actually comes on very early where the, the book begins in paris and there's a scene between robert Cohn and Jake Barnes, who's the protagonist, who's really kind of earnest anyway, right? I mean, this is basically Hemingway is is really the protagonist here. And Robert, I don't know who the hell Robert Cohen was, but he's one of uh, Hemingway's Jewish friends. So you can actually get a, a book recommendation that's going to go on my list. Um, and I had never heard of it before, but I'm definitely going to read it. So here I'm going to read it in detail. Um because I just want to give you the sense of kind of the, the whole thrust of the, my favorite part of the book. And it basically has to do with kind of carpe diem, the whole Robin Williams thing. But so Robert Cohn and Ernest Hemingway or Jake Barnes are sitting in a, I think a hotel room and having a conversation. And Cohn brings up this, this thing, and I'll read it verbatim here. It says, and then there was this other thing. Cohn had been reading W.H. Hudson. That sounds like an innocent occupation, but Cohn had read and reread The Purple Land. The Purple Land is a very sinister book if read too late in life. It recounts splendid, imaginary, amorous adventures of a perfect English gentleman in an intensely romantic land, the scenery of which is well described. For a man to take it at 34 as a guidebook to what life holds is about as safe as it would be of a man of the same age to enter Wall Street, direct from a French convent. Cohn, I believe, took every word of the Purple Land as literally as though it had been an R.G. Dunn report. You understand me? He made some observations, but on the whole, the book to him was sound. And it was all he needed to set him off. I did not realize the extent to which it set him off until one day he came into my office. Then I looked into the W.H. Land book, A Purple Land, W.H. Hudson book, A Purple Land. And it's basically an adventure tale that takes place in Uruguay in late 19th century, early 20th century is when the book was written. But it kind of describes that era. Um, Borges, a great Argentinian writer, describes it as one of the great works of gaucho adventure fiction um, that he had read. So I think it's kind of like, you know, one book I'm going to read is Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry. Uh, but I think it's that kind of book. I don't, I don't know if it's an exact comparison, but it's an adventure book. It's a live your life to your fullest book. Seize the day, you know, um, search in for adventure. And this clearly has an impact on Cone because then the following conversation is about Cone's desire to go to South America, clearly to kind of see if he can experience what 
uh, the protagonist in A Purple Land did, where he met a beautiful woman and went on a series of adventures. And this really resonated with me because in my 20s, I did go to Latin America and there really is something romantic about it. Um, the smell of the streets, the exhaust even, um, the, the, the scenery, the culture, the indigenous populations, there is something that if you, you kind of get addicted to it, and so, you know, I never did make that in my life. And I, by the way, I don't have any regret. Like, I'm glad that my life has taken the direction that it has. But I think this is something that everyone feels, they can almost feel it viscerally, which is what happens if my life passes me by and I haven't used my gift. I haven't used my talent. And so much of it waste that. Hemingway didn't do that. Now, he had an incredible amount of flaws, but he wrote this book when he was 26, 25 years old. I mean, that is a gift from a God. I mean, he knew that he had this incredible talent, but he also knew to use that talent, to season that talent, it had to be grounded in the experience that he actually lived. He couldn't do it from Oak Park. So this adventure story is really sets the scene for A Sun Also Rises because Cohn and Barnes have this conversation about going to South America. And they go back and forth a little while. And he basically says, Cohn's like, hey, let's go to South America. Let's have this incredible adventure where maybe we too can run into the gaucho. We too. You know, I think Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, they ended up living in um, Bolivia. We can learn Spanish, we can drink wine, we can get laid, we can go to the bar, you know, it's just the sense of adventure. And Hemingway is kind of the, uh, Barnes is kind of the um, person of reason. It's like, yeah, you're probably not going to want to go all the way to South America. But this sort of sets the scene for the central purpose of the book, which is um, life passing you by without living life to the fullest and all the ways in which that can happen. And that can be one of the most saddest things that is ever experienced. So they had this conversation. And it comes down to um, Barnes really feeling sorry for Cone. Like he hasn't lived life to the fullest. And so he knows, though, one people who do, which is the bullfighter. Because in Hemingway's view, to live life to the fullest, you got to face a little bit of danger. You have to experience life and death to feel alive. Now, I actually, I don't know if I really agree with that. Like, I'm not going to go skydiving just so I can experience that. But I think in terms of taking on some amount of risk, you have to do that to feel truly alive. And Hemingway feels sorry for him. And then Cohen says, I can't stand it to think about my life is going so fast and I'm not really living it. And then Barnes responds, nobody ever lives their life all the way except bullfighters. And then a little bit later on, Cone, they have this conversation back and forth. And then they, they go down to the cafe and they start um, getting a little drunk. And then he said, hey, let's, this is a this is a good place to drink some whiskey. And then he says, listen, Jake, there's a lot of liquor. And so they're getting a little buzzed, you can tell. This is the best part. It's very stoic, too. It said, listen, Jake, 
you lean forward at the bar, don't you ever get the feeling that all your life is going by and you're not taking advantage of it? Do you realize you've lived nearly half the time you have to live already? Yes, every once in a while, Barnes replied. Do you know that in about 35 years more, we'll all be dead? What the hell? I said, what the hell? He said, I'm serious. It's one thing I don't worry about, I said. He said, you ought to. I've had plenty to worry about one time or another, and I'm through worrying. Well, I want to go to South America. And then they have this conversation back and forth. And ultimately, the, the book, they don't go to South America. They go to um, Spain, and they experience the bullfight. So it's a story of the trip from Paris to northern Spain uh, to experience the bull site. And this is this that sentence really um, jumped out at you because out at me because it's don't you ever get the feeling that all of your life is going by and you're not really taking advantage of it? When you think about middle-aged angst or the story of most people, um, I think even later in life or even at the beginning of your life, the question is, am I using the gifts that I've been given? Is my life passing me, my, me by? And you know, here, I think of the work of Phil Stutz, and I'm going to do a um, really good episode on the therapist Phil Stutz. Um, Jonah Hill did a really good Netflix uh, show on Phil Stutz. But why, why am I connecting it to Phil Stutz? Because this question of death and seizing the day and life um, this, this concept of thinking about your own death. This is actually a therapeutic technique that Stutz uses to give you a sense of urgency to live your life in the present right now, today. And Stutz calls it jeopardy. And here's the file. And this is actually recommended by Stutz. And it totally makes sense. Instead of waiting for your deathbed, Imagine to have all these regrets. Imagine right now where you'll be in 30 years and if you are lying on your deathbed in 30 years or 40 in my case, like I'm 48, so I don't know how many more years I got left. But then you go back and you think about what did I really want to do with my life and did I do it? Do I have regrets? And he calls that jeopardy. And the purpose of Jeopardy is to get a sense of urgency to not waste the days that you have and to seize the day and to go right now, right? And to listen to that inner voice as your tuning fork so that you're not wasting this beautiful thing type called life and you're using your gifts. It's also very stoic. Um, the Stoics call this essentially negative visualization which is imagine all of the ways that your life would change if you didn't have what you have now. And that in, you know, as with all the concerns you have, with all the anxieties you have in three generations, no one would remember, you'll be dead. No one's going to remember who you were. And yet how many of us waste with just this pointless drama of our own mind. And yet, Hemingway doesn't fall into this trap. He actually knows this at 25. And here's where I, I just connect it to um, 
you know, I'm old enough now to have actually seen the Dead Poet Society when it came out. And the best part of that particular, um, the best part of that particular movie was Carpe Diem, where the dynamic English teacher, Robin Williams, draws the kids in and then to this old school um, window with all the previous athletes. And he draws all the students in and he has them look at the black and white photos earlier on when, the, you know, from basically 80 years before. And he has them look silently at each one of those young men. They're full of vim and vigor, and hopes and dreams. And every single one of those men had died and no longer exist. And so as they looked at those men, Robin Williams whispers, Carpe And I think that is why you read this book. That is why you study the life of Ernest Hemingway, because he had this sense, I think the thing that he was very lucky about is very early on, he lived his life as if it could be taken from him at any moment. And the rest of the book is about this incredible trip that they take to um, Northern Spain, Pamplona, you know, where they do the running of the bulls. And it's just, ah, it's just so beautiful. And if you can read the book, and just get a sense of your own mortality. So it is really powerful, this question of jeopardy and for him to have the wisdom of that at such a young age. Now, I think there's a, and, and you can get into, and I'm gonna do an episode on Phil Stutz and everything related to him. We'll, you know, you know how many of you know that I'm a big stoicism, but there's kind of an obvious, criticism of this position of Ernest Hemingway, which is, you know, kind of follow your heart, follow your instinct, follow your bliss. Um, the great writer, Joseph Campbell, who famously inspired um, the work of George Lucas and Star Wars, talked about this very frequently, which is follow that innermost source of joy that you have, because that's a tuning fork for what you're really, really good at. And it's actually very, very important. Um, and of course, Jay Shetty always talks about connecting it to make sure that there's a need. So the question is, if you do this and you follow your instinct, like Hemingway clearly did, I mean, you, you go back and look at his life, what part of his life did he not just freaking do what he wanted to do, live where he wanted to live, write what he wanted to write? I mean, it's just the whole thing. So the criticism is, and I think this is one of the things I think as, as, as your young people think about entering college, is, well, if you're just kind of following your instinct, following your bliss, isn't that kind of selfish? Shouldn't we kind of just give up yourself for uh, your family and everyone else around you and not follow your bliss and instead do what you don't necessarily like doing because that's what a man does, right? Isn't that what we're taught? But 
here i think that um this is a case where no i, I don't think that's actually accurate um you know there's the famous jim carrey graduation speech that i think he gave in fairfield i'm not sure but where he said that his dad became an accountant because he thought it was the safe and secure thing to do even though he had a sense of humor and he ended up not he lost his job and so jim carrey was like well i figured if i'm gonna fail i'm gonna fail at something i absolutely love doing rather than selling my soul to become an accountant by the way i'm not saying like don't become an account like some people actually love that shit like they're super detail oriented and accountants like i think in terms of the difference in a business a real business and a not real business is how good an account they have so it's super important and some people do have a passion for numbers and order and routine, which is perfect for a CPA. But if you have any artistic inkling and you you just need to get those quiet moments where you're in a walk where you're thinking, okay, what am I really good at? And what is my actual calling? What do I want to do? But, you know, the question is, is again, does it, is it something that is just selfish and nothing else is as good as going to come with it? You know, because you look at like Ernest Hemingway, like, like literally, and, and you know what he actually kind of reminded me of is Jimmy Buffett. Yeah, Jimmy Buffett and Ernest Hemingway. Because when you think when people get stressed out and they're thinking about, oh my God, is this the life I really wanted to live? What do they think about? They think about kind of that beach moment. Stutz calls it the snapshot, where you're pretty much sitting on a beach, beautiful woman at your side, getting drunk and watching the waves roll in. That's kind of what everyone thinks of. And you, know, you think someone like Jimmy Buffett, like he lived in the Caribbean, he sang these songs. I'm sure he got laid a lot. You know, he read that he's a great writer. And at some point, I am going to read his book on Jimmy Buffett at 50, because here's another guy that like did what he was destined to do. But look what he did. I mean, so these are two different examples, Jimmy Buffett and Ernest Hemingway. Ernest Hemingway, by following his bliss, recreated the American novel and created wealth not only for himself, but for everyone around him and joy and writing. If you want to learn how to write, read Ernest Hemingway. Ernest Hemingway, by following his bliss, has done more for writing instructors than probably anyone else in the history of the planet by following his bliss. You'd be much better rather than like teaching writing. If you want to learn how to write, just literally copy his, his work and start writing. You know, um, Shelby Foote, the great Southern writer, basically said the same thing. Don't learn how to write by listening to other writers or by going to, going to some professor about how to write. Write. Write over and over and over again. Get your work critique. Get better and better and better and better at it. Don't go to learn on the job. You know, um, Aristotle famously said, do what you want to do. Do the acts what you want to do to become that profession. So if you want to be a painter, paint. If you want to be a writer, write. I want to be a podcaster, so I'm doing podcasts. And... Um, you just have to repeatedly do it. You, you, you can't like buy some course and squeeze your butt cheeks and be like, oh my God, I, this is how you podcast. A lot of you would say like, oh my gosh, maybe you should go to a course because your, your podcasts are long and rambling, but they're me. 
And they're my art, they're my craft, and I'm doing it the way that I want to do it. And if you're listening now, you're enjoying it. And it's my voice. And I am repeatedly doing it over and over and over again, thinking about what works, what doesn't. I'm rebelling against some things that have worked, like, you know, my Tan Ali episodes. Those are my highest grossing episodes, but I don't want to just do everything on Tan Ali. So... In file, I, I think that is the great mistake. And if you have a young people, you know, the new theme of this podcast is men, podcast for men of all ages and the women who love that, love them, especially for younger men, follow what your heart tells you to do. Listen to your instinct. Now you got to make a uh, living at it or you're just, it's just a hobby. It has to serve a need or it's a hobby. You're being a child. But Ernest Hemingway listened to his bliss and he revolutionized American writing. I talked a little bit earlier about the timeline of his life. I'm not going to go through it in great detail or I'll also be here for like three hours and you'll be like, oh my God, this is just way too long. But in the 30s, he goes to the Spanish Civil War and parties in Madrid like while the shells are falling. I didn't realize this until watching the documentary. Ernest Hemingway went to D-Day and wasn't on the beaches, but like was in the ship pretty much during the landing. And then after the landing, actually saw combat in Northern France. I think he maybe even fired the gun a couple times and was part of the liberation of Paris. And in fact, came across, there was a bookstore, something like Shakespeare's or something like that in, in, Paris, and he was literally came across the bookseller there, and it's a great part of the documentary. Totally got to check it out. But in the fifties, then the forties and fifties, he gets you know he spends a lot of times in Cuba, and he lives in this incredible farm just outside of Havana. And then he's going fishing. He's getting drunk. He's going into town in the early fifties. He does two incredible expeditions to Africa and, and is involved in two plane crashes. And a lot of people think about that as maybe one of the reasons that led to all of his mental issues. Um, but then during the early 50s, he he writes a farewell, for, uh, for all the arms, old man to, and the sea. And then towards the end of his life, after the revolution occurred, um, he moves to Ketchum, Idaho, which is beautiful mountainous place where I'm sure he had a lot of great memories there. And in the process, he he wrote multiple books, but ultimately probably four of the best books of all time in American literature. He stands with Hawthorne, Mark Twain. I mean, he is the Michael Jordan of 20th century literature. And he did this by following his bliss and created so much wisdom for people. And to even connect me, I'll be eternally grateful for connecting me to Ecclesiastes. Another one of these beautiful passages in the Bible. And he did that by following his bliss. So I guess my take home for you is, is that if you're not where you want to be, the first thing you need to do is you need to write and to walk and to think and think about what you're really good at. You know, one of the parts of this podcast is, is my desire, you know, think, am I using my gifts? Yeah, I am during my day job as a lawyer. But I also want to share my ideas, what I'm interested in. 
what I like doing, the, the wisdom that I've learned in middle age, I want to share that with people and hopefully change people's life to the better by following my own bliss. And I think I have a talent for this. It's not shown in the numbers yet, but it is something I absolutely love doing. So I am actually practicing what I'm preaching. So in terms of the legacy of Hemingway, first off, I'm not going to be some big professor and say, oh, what does it all mean? As it well, you know, and I get a kick of like all these PhDs in Hemingway. But so many of these people, all the great writers, I don't think any of them even went to college. They get all these PhDs that haven't really written shit. And they may do a biography, but you know, they haven't really read any great books. And what's kind of my one of my reasons for that is I wanted to be a professor for a long time. And really, I think what was drawn to me really was its ease. It's very comfortable position. But it's kind of like being in a zoo, right? You're, there is no risk. You have a stable salary. You're not strengthening yourself. It's too easy. It's too toxic. You're surrounded by all these people that try to emasculate you constantly. It's You're not going to grow. It's like saying you can get in shape without working hard. Hemingway sought danger. Hemingway sought difficulty. And yeah, I, I mean, I think the other lesson that we have from Hemingway is, is yeah, he embraced danger, but he also liked to chill out. So he worked really hard, but then he chilled out and he drank and he partied. And, but the other part of it is why so many academics don't necessarily produce, produce great literature is they haven't really lived, you know, in terms of like really going, like Hemingway understood he had to go to a place to, to have stuff to write about, to be interesting. He had to live in incredible places, have something to share. He could not have produced the works that he did had he gotten his PhD at the University of Illinois and become a professor of literature in, you know, at, in, at Northwestern University. He had to experience life. But the other legacy that I love with Hemingway is that if you know anyone that does homeschool or you want to give your young person a, um, you know, a sense of uh, what to read, I mean, for crying out loud, this book, A Sun Also Rises, I mean, you could get a biography on Hemingway and literally do an entire curriculum just around his life. With that book, you would get all the, all the artists and writer, writers that he came across early 20th century, the writers that he loved, Mark Twain, he was in um, early 20th century Paris in the movable feast. He was in the Spanish Civil War, which was basically the stage one for World War II and the right-left dispute that even we see down to this day. And that became um, for whom the bell tolls. He was in World War I um, and experienced combat injuries in World War One, and that became a farewell to arms. Um, you know, he, his sense of style, uh, his writing, just being able to write like Hemingway, it was just kind of phenomenal. This book, The Purple Land, I think I'm going to read that book now. I think that that's going to be, it's going to inspire a whole bunch of other stuff that I want to uh, read and this also this gift that he gives you, if nothing else, I sound like the high school motivational speak, speaker. 
if nothing else, this gift of jeopardy that he gives you, which is what Phil Stutz talks about, which is live your life as if you're going to die tomorrow. And it's not that you're going to like live recklessly. It's that you're not going to needlessly waste your life when you have, um, when you realize how limited your life was. The greatest gift that I think Hemingway gave to himself was his own sense of jeopardy at a very young age, he really realized he needed to get out and experience it, not go to college, go out and travel. So I'm going to do a, I'm going to do a podcast on the benefits of college, whether you should go or not. But certainly I can say if you're not going to go, right, then you really have to say like, okay, what am I doing in lieu of that for an equivalent experience? So like, that's kind of the key thing that lost. Yeah, Bill Gates didn't go, but he was founding Microsoft. Ernest Hemingway didn't go, but he was hanging out with Sherwood Anderson, who connected him with Gertrude Stein and went to Paris with all these other great writers and was writing, right? So these are people that, yeah, they didn't go, but they had an alternative real-life experience. So if you have that type of thing, by all means, do that. And he followed his bliss, and you just you get the 20th century, you get through the eyes of Ernest Hemingway. I mean, he was in colonial Africa. He, the Cuban Revolution, modern literature, Mark Twain, it's all there. An incredibly flawed person. He's not a perfect person, but oh my goodness, I'm going to do more stuff on Hemingway. What kind of drinks he liked. I think I might even host a Hemingway-themed cocktail party. I'm going to try to get a sense of his style. I'm just like a learn because he is a dude's dude. So I think he's really the perfect person to start with um, the Rockney cast on this. So totally check out A Sun Also Rises. Also watch the PBS documentary, um, Ken Burns, Ernest Hemingway. It is so good. And soak up Hemingway. I mean, travel. I don't really have enough coin right now to travel there, but go to go to Pamplona and see a bullfight. I mean, hell yeah. I mean, it's just like, and that's why I love the bullfighters is they were kind of living on the edge um have a cock have an maybe i'll have an Ernest Hemingway cocktail this weekend i don't know so so friends thank you so much for tuning into the rockney cast a, a podcast for men and the women who love them men of all ages and the women who love them let me know what you kind of like this new reboot um we're going to continue and I, and I think what i like about it is it gives me a theme but it also allows me the flexibility to do what i'm really interested in so we're going to cover history great leaders you know women style, shoes, careers, kids, mentors, all of these things are going to be covered in the Rockney cast. And you're going to learn a lot. You're going to have a lot of fun. And hopefully at some point you share this because my good ones, I get like 10 listens. So if you're listening right now, do share this with other people. I think this is going to be a good one for people that kind of need a little kick in the ass in their life. My Ernest Hemingway uh, podcast. So thank you so much for tuning in. Give me positive reviews on um, Spotify, iTunes, and all places where podcasts are heard. And join me again on my next episodes. We're going to continue to do a lot of high-quality content here on the Rocky Cast. I hope it's going to be on the Bible. We're going to have a lot of other good stuff. Maybe I'll do Phil Stutz relatively soon on this uber-therapist of Jonah Hill from Netflix. And a continue deep dive into everything that I find super interesting. So thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, you tune in to the Rockney Cast.